You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Today's sermon text is from Acts 17, 1 through 15. After they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you as the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too, and Jason has welcomed them. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The crowd and city officials who heard these things were upset. After taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. As soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Upon arrival, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. The people here were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of the prominent Greek women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and upsetting the crowds. Then the brothers and sisters immediately sent Paul away to go to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed on there. Those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving instructions for Silas and Timothy to come to him as quickly as possible, they departed. This is God's word. Good morning. Um, my name is, yes, kiddos are dismissed. Kiddos, kids are dismissed up to their uh, classrooms. Thank you for that reminder. Um, my name is Micah, and uh, most weeks I have the pleasure of uh, being up here and, and leading in worship, but um, this week I get a chance to preach, and Sharon, I was going to say some very nice things about her, and she decided to, to leave. Oh, there she is. She's hiding, hiding back there. Uh, thank you to Sharon and Jess for, for leading and giving me a chance to preach, and Sharon, it's been a great privilege to, to sing with you and lead with you over the past uh, couple of years, and um, you've done an amazing job in leading and serving our church in that way. And uh, as Chad said, to give you a word of encouragement, so my encouragement, I know leaving is tough, but uh, if you keep singing about and worshiping Jesus, he's going to take care of you. So <clears throat> a couple of years ago, um, actually it was a, more like, 10 years ago at this point, um, someone asked a big group of Bible scholars, theologians, pastors, kind of 
pretty healthy group of famous folks that no doubt you would know their names if I was to go through. But they, he asked them to say, share the story of the Bible in one sentence. And there was, I don't know, maybe 20, 25 of these. And um, as I was reading through them, I was surprised at how different they all were. These were all very conservative, um, you know, cut from the same cloth type of evangelical scholars. They all would agree on a great number of things. And yet when it came to kind of paring the da- down the story of the Bible to one sentence, they had all sorts of different answers. And uh, I don't want to give their names because I don't want it to skew how you may think about them, but I gave them kind of code names as I go through and just wanted to share what some of them wrote to give you an idea of how different they could be. So the first one, I called him the cheater because he just wrote John 3.16. It says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Cop out. The next one I called the Sunday schooler. He gave the classic Sunday school answer. God created mankind in order to love them, but we all rejected his love. So God sent his son to bear our sins on the cross in order that by believing in his sacrificial atonement, we might have life. Uh, The next one I called the Southern Baptist preacher. No offense, Chad and Aaron. But he had to come up with something catchy. So he said, God made it, we broke it, Jesus fixed it. Um, this one I, I did call the cop-out because he said the message of the Bible in one sentence is that genuine truth, unlike every human philosophy, is far too luxuriant, too enthralling, too personal, too all-encompassing, too sovereign, and too life-changing to be reducible to one sentence. <laughs> uh, the, the next one I called the poet, who says the lover of our soul will not let the romance die, but is rekindling it forever. Um, the Tolkien wannabe is the scripture tells us the story of how a garden is transformed into a garden city, but only after a dragon had turned that garden into a howling wilderness, the haunt of owls and jackals, which lasted until an appointed warrior came to slay the dragon, giving up his life in the process, but with his blood is affecting the transformation of the wilderness into the garden city. Uh, my personal favorite is apprenticing with Jesus to become human. Uh, And then probably the best, if I, in my humble opinion, is the movement in history from creation to new creation through the redemptive work of the Father, Son, and Spirit who saves and changes corrupted people and places for his glory and their good. But it gives you a flavor of how depending on what you think is most important or um, how you want to tell the story when you have to pare it down to one sentence, different themes can come out and you have to cut things out. What do you choose to focus on when it comes down to one sentence? And what I want to talk about today is how we might do this about the gospel. So a question for you is, how would you tell the gospel in one sentence? If you had to bring everything down, boil it down into one sentence, how would you do this? So maybe this is a good activity for you to do this Labor Day weekend as you're at a cookout with your family or friends. Um, you, can, you can bring this up and say, how would you tell the gospel in one sentence? And it's a great exercise because it does force you to think about what is most important, what is absolutely essential that you cannot take out of the gospel. And I think in Acts 17 here in the passage that we read, we get 
an example of Paul's one-sentence gospel. And we, I want to look at that today. So in, in uh, Paul's ministry in Thessalonica, he's, it says that Paul was there preaching for three Sabbath days, at least. So three weeks, Paul is there sharing, sharing, sharing. But Luke gives us one sentence of what he shared through that whole week. So he pairs it all down into one sentence. In 17 verses 2 and 3, it says, As usual, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath day, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and provide, uh, providing proof that, that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. This is Paul's one-sentence gospel. From the Scriptures, suffering, rising from the dead, this Jesus is the Messiah. Now, what, what's surprising to you about this sentence? When I read through this and I was thinking through, wow, this is kind of Paul's, Paul's gospel in one sentence, it kind of shocked me a little bit. It shocked me because it doesn't really sound a lot like the gospel that, I, that we talk about a lot, that we hear preached a lot, that when we kind of try to tell a simple gospel story, it doesn't sound a whole lot like this. Uh, as an example, I, this uh, yesterday happened to be at a very large church in the area, no need to name names, um, and I just happened to look on the wall, and they had, you know, a nice little gospel tract uh, that we've all come across before, and, you know, it told a very simple gospel story, nothing wrong with it, I'm not trying to pick on it, but it didn't really sound like this. It had a lot of other things that weren't these things. There was nothing, there's nothing in Paul's one-sentence gospel, there's nothing about how to get to heaven or how to avoid hell. There's nothing about your sins being forgiven or clearing a guilty conscience. There's nothing about faith or being blessed. There's nothing about breaking the law or being justified. Now, in case you think I'm crazy here, I want to provide just a couple of quick other examples that I think show Paul's one-sentence gospel that are the same as we see here today. You don't have to turn there, but in Romans 1, you know, Paul's magnum opus of the gospel, Romans 1, verses 1 through 4, listen to what Paul says. He says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was appointed to the powerful son of God according to the spirit, by the resurrection of the dead, according to the scriptures, through death and resurrection, appointed to be the Messiah. 1 Corinthians 15, no doubt uh, we've shared this here many times, where Paul says, I want to make clear to you the gospel I preached to you. I passed on. This is what is first importance that you received, that according to the scriptures, Christ died, was buried, was resurrected, according to the scriptures. Death, burial, resurrection, according to the scriptures. Again, Paul's one-sentence gospel. Second uh, Timothy 2.8, this one is, is great. It says, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David, David. This is my gospel. Now, hear me out. What I'm not saying is that faith and justification and heaven and hell are not parts of the gospel that are not important, that we don't have to talk about. If you read the Bible, and it's all over the place. Of course we talk about it. But it is not what Paul reduces his gospel to. 
It's, it's, those are the benefits of the gospel. Those are not the gospel themselves, and we can't confuse those two things. This is important because it, it makes a difference for our trajectory as we go along in our Christian faith. Now, a lot of you who know me know that I love to do house projects at home. Um, I've done far more than I ever intended doing. But one, I've learned a lot of really hard life lessons through doing home projects, and one of those is that if your starting point is off, even ever so slightly, your ending point will be so much worse. If I start off a quarter of an inch, by the time I get to the end, it's off two feet. And then you got to go back and redo the whole thing. And I think this is the point that I'm trying to make here, is that if we start off, even ever so slightly, missing this essential gospel one-sentence truth, it can lead us to go astray and get really far off as we go along before we even know it. So as examples of that, if we reduce the gospel simply to how to get to heaven, then heaven becomes the ultimate reward and not Jesus. Now, you can see this in that terrible, sorry excuse for music called country music. Uh, no, sorry, shots fired. Um, but you can see this. If you listen to a lot of popular country music, man, they love to sing about heaven. But there's very little of Jesus. The streets of gold are what they long for, not presence with God. If the gospel is simply reduced to how, do, how to get your sins forgiven, then it becomes a transaction only. There's no discipleship. There's no need for helping the poor. It, it all becomes just a sin problem. It's not a gun problem. It's a sin problem, right? Don't want to get in trouble, so I'll stop there. If the gospel is simply just believing or having faith, then you'll either have a false assurance, meaning I prayed this prayer one time, I believed, I'm good to go, don't need to worry about anything else, or you'll have no assurance, which if you were like me growing up, every time someone said, pray this prayer with me, I prayed it again because, you know, just want to be sure. Man, I don't know if I meant it last time, I got to pray it again. Altar call? Yeah, I'll go to the altar. Because it, if it's all just about faith, then faith becomes the thing that is dependent and you either have false or no assurance. If the gospel is simply about breaking the law and being justified, then God becomes beholden to a legal system, and he is simply just reacting to our choices. What happens is Jesus just becomes a plan B rather than plan A. A New Testament scholar, Scott McKnight, he says that getting this distinction right is the difference between a gospel culture and a salvation culture. In a gospel culture, it is all about Jesus. In a salvation culture, it is all about me. If it's getting to heaven, having my sins forgiven, being justified, the gospel becomes about me, about us. But that's not what the gospel about, is about. Those are the benefits of the gospel, but the gospel is the story of Jesus and what he has done and who he is. It's the difference between just getting people to decide versus getting people to be disciples. So I want to look at this one-sentence gospel as Paul preaches it and the, uh, how it's laid out and what happens in Thessalonica and Berea. So I'm kind of using Paul's one-sentence gospel, but modifying it slightly. So one-sentence gospel for us this morning is, according to the scriptures, and because of his death and resurrection, Jesus is king, and that changes everything. 
So I'm going to break down these four parts for us as we go through this. So first, Jesus is king. Now, I want you to remember that despite how it's used in, in our modern language, Jesus Christ, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Okay? Christ is a title that is given to Jesus. And that title is always tied back to the messianic promises of the Old Testament, that God would provide a descendant of David who would be king on the throne forever. So in this passage where Paul says that this Jesus has been made Messiah, he is talking about he has been made king. When we read Christ or Messiah, we can replace it in our minds with king to get the proper force of it. And we can see that in this passage because the Jews that oppose them, they get what Paul was saying, right? When they lead the riot in the city, they stir the crowd up and they go before them and they said that they are declaring that there is another king besides Caesar, that it's Jesus. He's the king that they're declaring. They got this. They understood what Paul was getting at, that Jesus is king, not anyone else. Jesus is king. And this is the foundational framework of our gospel message. It's the banner under which everything must fall, that Jesus is king. It helps us understand our chief response to him is that we, we respond with loyalty and allegiance because he is king, because of who he is. It's a declaration that Jesus is the one that God has set upon earth to be his exact representation and image to rule and bring God's reign and kingdom from heaven to earth. So we have to start there, that Jesus is king. But how do we know that he is king? We can say that, but how do we know that? That's the second part, according to the scriptures. According to the scriptures, Jesus is king. Now, when Paul is, starts preaching in Thessalonica, he, it says he goes to the synagogue, and for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them, and explaining and proving from the scriptures that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and die. Everything we say about Jesus must be reasoned and from the scriptures. I love that Paul says, his, the quote that it has of him, the actual thing that Paul says, he says, this Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah. This Jesus, the one that is found in scriptures, no other Jesus is the Messiah, only the one that is found in the scriptures. Not the Jesus of our experience. It's Paul had the most insane experiences of Jesus in his life. We already read earlier in Acts about his road to the Emmaus when Jesus comes down and strikes him blind. And it's striking that very rarely does Paul ever go back to that experience and to say, that's how I know he's the Messiah. He always reasons from the scripture. In fact, when he talks about his experiences with Jesus, he usually downplays them. He says, I could tell you about this experience I had, and I could use all of that authority and power, but I'm not going to, because the gospel is about power made known in weakness, and he reasons it from the scriptures. We may have experiences with Jesus, and that's good, and they help, but when we are preaching the gospel, it is the Jesus that we find in the scriptures. It's not the Jesus of pop culture or TV shows. It is the Jesus of the scriptures. That's how we know he is king. Now, because of this, it also, on the flip side with the Bereans, it becomes the lens through which we read and understand Scripture now. Look at how the Bereans respond. 
They said they were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They went back to the scriptures now knowing that Jesus is king and they read the scriptures afresh through this new lens and this new understanding. That's how we read the, and understand the scriptures is through the life and work of Jesus. We read backwards, not forwards. We don't read the Old Testament sacrificial system to understand what Jesus did. We, we see what Jesus did to understand what the sacrificial system was showing us. We don't read the story of Jonah or Joseph or Moses or Abraham to understand what Jesus did. Now that we know what Jesus has done, that has been the mystery of God's work in Christ has been revealed, we now read the scriptures with fresh eyes. And we read to encounter Jesus and his story. There are lots of great ways to read the scriptures. And, you know, I am the nerdiest of all of them when it comes to reading and finding the original language and asking the great questions of what was the original meaning and understanding the ancient Near East backgrounds. Those are all good and all great ways to read the scripture. But when it comes to gospel reading of the scripture, we read it to encounter Jesus. We read it to know the story of Jesus. Now, two things I just want to mention from this passage that I think are helpful for us as we talk about reading and knowing Jesus as king according to the scriptures. First, this is done in community. Both Thessalonica and Berea, Paul is going to the synagogues and he is in the community proclaiming the gospel. And primarily in Berea, we see this laid out clearly, that they gather together every day, reading the scriptures together, examining them to know what is true. We have to read scripture in community. That doesn't mean you can't read the Bible on your own. Obviously you can. But the gospel brings together a group of people to read the scriptures together, to know Christ better through community. And I think it's, it's uh, interesting that in both Thessalonica and in Berea, Paul specifically calls out that those who believed were among them Greek women and prominent women at that. There's lots of talk right now on, uh, you know, women in the church and biblical womanhood and all those conversations are good and need to happen. But if we are going to be faithful to the image of the community of God found in Scripture, we at least need to make room for the fact that there are prominent, influential women who are studying Scripture together with the entire community. We saw last week that Lydia was a small business owner, <laughs> wealthy woman who's hosting a house church in her home. We're going to see later in Acts more women come to the scene and do incredible things. Everyone in the community is responsible for reading the Scriptures together and seeing Christ together. Second thing, this is done open-mindedly. Um, the, I just talked about not uh, being weird about the Greek words, but I'm going to get weird about the Greek words. Um, in Berea, it says they were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, which, um, you know, we can tend to think like, oh, they were high-born or, you know, highfalutin people. But really what it means is they were like fair-minded. They were open-minded. And I think this is something that's sorely lacking in our day. 
Um, I, I don't know why, but I still get on Twitter and, you know, it's always the worst decision I make that day. And there is just no open-mindedness. Someone says something and you know that they're from a particular tribe or from a particular standpoint. And it's just like, I don't even care what you said. I'm not even going to look at it. It's just wrong because of who you are and who said it or where it came from. You know, I mean, Tim Keller can't even die without people wanting to complain about things that he said and did. Like, what is wrong with us? (laughs) You know, the Bereans were noble character because they were at least willing to listen. Now, that doesn't mean they were uncritical. They still sat down and said, are these things true? So we we have to be critical, but let's at least be fair. Let's be fair-minded and open-minded. Let's let's open ourselves to to hear things that are different. And you might be shocked and surprised at actually how other people can lead you to, to know Christ better, can lead you to understand the scriptures better. I love how it says that the Bereans sat down with open minds and they said, examine the scriptures, and consequently, they believed. Because in the scriptures, you will find Jesus. If you want to know that Jesus is king, read the scriptures and you will find him there and you will see that he is king. But we don't need to know not only that he is king, but it's also good to know what kind of king he is. And that's the next part of this. Because of his suffering and resurrection, unlike the rest of the kings on earth, Jesus did not become king by killing his enemies and through the suffering of others. But rather, he suffered himself, and he laid down his own life for his enemies. Jesus becomes king like no other king. And as king, king of the universe, mind you, this means that this suffering, death, and resurrection is actually the true and real and underlying principle or logic of reality. Now, in the book of Revelation, it's interesting that Jesus is both said to be the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, and also the one who is sitting on the throne forever is said to look as a lamb who was slain. Both before time began and for all of time, Jesus has always been the lamb who was slain. God set the foundations of the world upon this principle of death and resurrection. Jesus comes and he says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. That is the logic of reality. It's not what we see, but that's what's truly there. I started reading Narnia to my kids this week, so I kind of have Narnia on the brain. And this is the, the deeper magic if you've ever read Narnia, that Aslan, the white witch, thinks she's got it. She did what she saw and knew to be right. And Aslan said, she doesn't know anything. There's a deeper magic. This is the deeper magic. We may see our life leading only to death, but the deeper magic is that it's death and resurrection. Jesus, as the crucified and risen one, is the essential reality there's a great book by an uh, author named Gary Sitzer, and he talks about how the early church was able to make such an impact in the early Greco-Roman world. And this quote from him is, is amazing. He says, 
The amazing impact of this faith throughout the Greco-Roman culture was not due to how Christians lived or how they formed people in the faith, at least not primarily. Rather, it was concerned with what Christians believed about the nature of reality and who they believed was at the center of that reality, namely Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the center of reality. He is the king of the universe. And what kind of king is he? He's a king who lays down his life, who takes it back up again, and provides life for us all. Not only is he that true underlying reality, but also he solves the essential human problem. No one asked us if we wanted to be born. We are all just thrown into existence where the only certain things are death and taxes. Right? You, you didn't choose to be born. You were born. You were here, and you're going to die. That is the essential human problem. Now, this goes back to Acts 15 that we talked about a few weeks ago, where the early church is debating over what is required for salvation. And they were saying, well, circumcision is required to salvation. But that is solving just a Jewish problem. That's not solving the human problem. We don't celebrate Jesus' circumcision. We celebrate his resurrection because he is solving the problem that we have, namely death. By before we were even created, he was already resurrected from death. He is a, he is a good king. He is a king that has solved all of our deepest problems. And when we get this, that is what leads us to our last one. This changes everything. Or as they say, this turns the world upside down. What is his kingdom like? He is the king. We know what kind of king he is, but what is his kingdom like? It's a kingdom that changes everything. It turns the world upside down. I don't know if you guys have ever done an escape room before, but I remember uh, we went to an escape room several months ago. Well, it might have been years ago now. Um, Time gets away from me. Um, and one of the rooms that we walked into, everything was, it was a room that was upside down. So like a bed and a chair and a table and all these things were up on the ceiling. And it was really disorienting, right? Because we have seen everything we can see with our eyes is one way. And when Jesus comes, it really should be like walking into an upside down room. It, it flips everything on its head. And it impacts every sphere of life. I was just thinking through as the, where we've come through in the book of Acts so far. If we think back, every area of life has been thrown upside down because of this gospel message. Religious life has been turned upside down. Economic life has been turned upside down. Civil, judicial, and political life has all been turned upside down. We looked a few weeks ago interpersonal life has been turned upside down. And people's own personal lives, Paul primarily has been turned upside down. We've seen the physical world be turned upside down and the spiritual world be turned upside down. There's nothing that has not been turned upside down because of this gospel message. And this is the life that we're to live. The crucified and resurrected life is the life that we're to live. I want to take just a few minutes to look at what Paul eventually writes to the church at Thessalonica. Because I think it's a great example of 
this upside-down life. So in 1 Thessalonians, it's a hard one to say, in 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul writes this to them, and he writes it specifically about this moment in Acts that we read about. So I'm going to read it for us here, uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 1. It says, For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our visit with you was not without result. On the contrary, we had previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi. As you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. For our exhortations didn't come from the error or impurity or from intent to deceive. Instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please people, but rather God, who examines our hearts. For we've never used flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives. God is our witness. We didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others. Although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you, as a nurse nurtures her own children. We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel, but our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember our labor and hardship, brothers and sisters, working night and day so that we would not burden any of you. We preach the God's gospel to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each one of you to live worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Think about this. Paul had just come from Philippi, where he was beaten, put in prison for this gospel message. And he says, you know, we were treated outrageously in Philippi. But we were emboldened to go and speak to you. That's the crucified life, crucified and risen life, that we have courage in the face of any opposition. He talks frequently in this passage about the fact that he did not come to deceive or to be greedy or to seek any glory of his own. It was only for God. How many Christian leaders have we not been able to say that about lately? He said, as apostles of Christ, he had every right and every authority to come and use his position to burden other people. But he didn't. Despite being beaten, he goes there and he works to the bone so that he was not a burden to any one of them there, so that nothing would get in the way of the gospel. That's incredible. That's like, no, I don't even, I don't even give that example. He sacrificed, and he gives his life away. I love the language that he uses here. He talks about being a nursing mother, which, in case you didn't know, I'm sure Paul was never an actual nursing mother. But that tenderness that he had for others, that willingness. I've, I've seen my wife nurse all three of our kids. It is a sacrifice. But it also creates an incredible connection. And he says that. We cared so dearly for you. Like, who talks like this anymore? Who has, who has this outlook on life? Someone, people that he'd never met before. He just comes into their city, starts preaching the gospel, and he cares so dearly for them that he's willing to share his entire life with them. This is the crucified and resurrected life. This is the kingdom. 
not seeking our own glory, but only the glory of God, laying down our lives for others, being, going out of the way to be no burden to anyone else, not taking our own authorities or our own positions for granted, but instead laying those down, be willing to not take the rights that are, are rightfully ours. This is, this is still, sadly, today, countercultural to our own Christian culture. I want to provide a quote here from perhaps a surprising figure for a uh, sermon on the gospel, but in the uh, effort of being fair-minded, I'll give you all a chance to practice that this morning, uh, I want to provide a quote for us from Pope Francis. Now, in case you haven't noticed, we are not a Catholic church, so, um, and the Pope carries no special authority here, but he says something quite astounding in this passage that I think speaks to the heart of everything that we're saying this morning. This was at a, a talk he gave back in 2013. This is what he says. It is not this life that will serve as a reference point for eternity, for that other life that awaits us. Rather, it is eternity, that life, which illumines and gives hope to the earthly life of each one of us. If we look at things from only a human perspective, we tend to say that man's journey moves from life to death. This is what we see. But it is only so if we look at things from a human perspective. This is the key. Jesus turns this perspective upside down and states that our pilgrimage goes from death to life, the fullness of life. We are on a journey, on a pilgrimage, towards the fullness of life. And that fullness of life is what illumines our journey. Therefore, death stands behind us, not before us. I say amen, Pope. That's good gospel preaching. Now, this Sunday in the church calendar is Pentecost Sunday. And we started our journey in Acts about nine months ago, and Pentecost happens real early in Acts, and it's the day that we look back and remember the birth of the church. And so as I was reflecting on Pentecost Sunday this morning and um, just remembering, you know, that God poured out his spirit and he, he gave Peter this message and Peter stood up and delivered the first gospel evangelistic sermon. And he ends that sermon with this line. Let everyone know that Jesus, whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. From the very first day of the church, we have relied on telling the story of Jesus and trusting the Spirit to overwhelm hearts with his beauty. May we forever do the same. I want to end with a, a prayer for Pentecost as we reflect on this great gospel message. God Almighty, on this day you opened the way to eternal life to every race and nation by the promised gift of your Holy Spirit. Shed abroad this gift throughout the world by the preaching of the gospel that it may reach to the ends of the earth through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in unity with the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.